Hello, I'm Leanne Townsend, a family law lawyer and chair of the family law group at Mills and Mills LLP. Welcome to Divorcing Well. Welcome to Divorcing Well. I'm Leanne Townsend, and this week we're talking about the important topic of income assessment. And this is something that comes up with a lot of clients who either are self-employed themselves or their spouse is self-employed. And we're trying to get to the bottom of what is a realistic income uh, to attribute to a self-employed person for the purposes of some of the family law issues, in particular spousal and child support. So I'm excited to have on the podcast today, Ryan Benson. Uh, Ryan is a return guest, uh, so he's one of my my favorites. I've asked him back, and uh, his last podcast was very popular, so um, I'm excited to have him here. So welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Hey, Leanne. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, why don't you start by just telling listeners a little bit about the work that you do and your background? Sure. So my background as a forensic accountant is working in these matrimonial cases to determine income for support and uh, potentially a business valuation. And in, in terms of qualifications, if you so circle back to the first podcast that we did together in, I think it was December 2020 or early January 2020. And we can go through the role of a forensic accountant there. And uh, today we're going to talk really I guess, in more depth and more discussion on these income for support issues. Yeah. So what, ha- what I find happens with me is, you know, I'll have a client come to me and their spouse is, uh, has his own business, varying sizes. It could be something fairly small or it could actually, you know, in some cases be a fairly large business earning, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And, we go to complete the financial statements and, you know, this person has been the, the, the ex-spouse has been the major breadwinner, his, you know, I'm using him and her, but it could be the other way around. Uh, you know, his business has been supporting the family and we're trying to figure out, you know, his income for the purposes of support. And, you know, as you would know off, you know, when we're looking at people who don't have their own business and we look at their, their income, we look at the line, you know, 150 on the income tax return. um, And it's fairly straightforward. But when they have their own business, and they have a gross income, um, you know, of course, there's going to be legitimate business expenses that they can deduct. But, you know, sometimes somebody might have a gross income of half a million dollars, but their net income after all the expenses is like $30,000. And so, Tell us a little bit about how you approach that type of situation to help, you know, my client in that situation figure out what their spouse's income really is so we can make sure they're getting the proper amount of spousal and child support. Absolutely. And this is actually a situation that happens more commonly, or at least in the files that I see it happens more commonly, where you have, a, you have that business that's earning $500,000 in revenue. And in the scenario that you're saying where the net income is $30,000 a year, part of that to me stands out and and I start to think, hmm, that doesn't make 100% sense because I would expect a higher level of profit there. So immediately, and I'll touch on this, I guess, in a few minutes, I'm, I'm starting to think maybe there are some expenses here that might be personal in nature. But when, when I'm dealing with a client in this situation, and I'm going to assume, Leanne, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
that this client isn't particularly financially sophisticated. Is that? That's a fair assumption in the scenario I'm talking about. Perfect. Perfect. So one of the things that I like to guide people through in this type of situation, it's almost like a mini accounting and tax university in a sense. So I want to talk to the client and give them the background sort of base structure of information and how to interpret tax returns and what a business looks like from a financial perspective. And that can help and assist along the way because as we go through this process of analyzing financial statements and analyzing tax returns, I want that client to be informed and knowledgeable about what we're talking about. So ideally, by the time you're out of this mess, so to speak, you have a better understanding of finance and how businesses work to begin with, which will help with your decision-making going forward as well. That makes sense. Um, Now, in terms of, you know, looking at what expenses, you know, someone should be able to deduct, you know, when we're trying to get to the bottom of what their, their income, what a fair income would be for, for spousal support and child support. What are some of the types of things that, you know, would not be a flag to you? Anything that the basic rule is if the expense is being incurred to produce income, then it's a legitimate expense, generally speaking. And Let's say this business is a, a contracting business, right? So they're they're perhaps doing renovations or or that type of work, and they're earning five hundred thousand dollars in revenue per year. So, what a contracting business is going to look like is you're going to have that five hundred thousand dollars in revenue to start with. But the company's not making five hundred thousand dollars. There are some expenses here that we've got to look at. So, one of the things I'm going to expect to see is something to do with purchasing material to use in in providing this service or providing this product. So it might be Home Depot receipts, it might be a cement, I don't know. But you'll see a cost of sales or, or purchase amount on the financials there. And that, generally speaking, is going to be legitimate. It might be something to take a poke into and see uh, if there's anything else being run through that account. But for the most part, I'm expecting that to be legitimate. Similarly, if the person has staff, then I'm going to expect to see a payroll expense. Or if they're hiring subcontractors to do the work, I'm going to expect to see that too. And that, again, for the most part, is going to be legitimate. It starts to trail off into a bit of a gray area, though, if suddenly you see uh, Joe, who owns this business, he's hiring his brother and his cousin and there's kids being involved in the business, that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, that starts to raise red flags to me there. And I'm starting to think, okay, maybe we're pushing some income off to the side. But generally speaking, if it's if it's legitimate payroll expenses, then then those would be legitimate too. Motor vehicle. So if there's a truck, gas, insurance, that sort of thing. What if it's like the whole family's motor vehicles? Yeah, then it then it's not legitimate and it shouldn't be being deducted. And that's one of those examples where you have a, a kind of gray area where you see that there are some motor vehicle expenses that are legitimate, but at the same time, if he's deducting a Ford F-150 to run the contracting business and at the same time is deducting a Porsche 911, 
I know that we've got a problem here because the Porsche 911 is clearly not a business car. So let's add that back and, and start to work our way up from there. What about, you know, entertainment? Um, you know, <laughs> like, is it, say, say in our example, um, the, the person who's self-employed is, is a lawyer and they have their own law practice. And, you know, sometimes they wine and dine clients or they wine and dine you know, their networking contacts, um, you know, say I were to wine and dine you because I wanted you to come on my podcast, um, you know, things like that, you know, is how do you determine, you know, whether they're legitimate or whether they should be questioned? If the, if the invitation is to go to, for whining and dining, Leanne, count me in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the question you're right is, is, is this a legitimate expense? And Luckily for us, to a certain degree, this is addressed in the Income Tax Act in the sense that right off the bat, 50% of meals or entertainment are not deductible for tax purposes. And it's for that reason. There's a personal component that the government has said uh, should be embedded here and, and recognized on the financials. So even if it's 100% legitimate, only for business use, only half of that expense is being deducted for business purposes. From there though, the question becomes, is it legitimate or not? So if you see, uh, and I've seen this before where someone's taking out their family for dinner or something obvious where you'll see uh, you know, two adult meals and three kids meals. I mean, it's obviously a family meal <laughs> and that's not a legitimate expense. But if I'm looking at that account specifically, I'm going to be asking questions such as who was in attendance at such and such event or, or dinner and ideally prove it. So show me, show me some sort of evidence of that, that could substantiate that expense. Now with clients that you've worked on or files that you've worked on, um, do you have like a couple of maybe the kind of like crazy stories you could tell us of uh, situations that have come up that, um, you know, listeners might find, you know, surprising or outlandish or something like that? <laughs> yes. Without naming uh, names, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why this has happened in my career specifically, but I seem to have this sort of magnetic draw to really wild and wacky files where there's a lot of things going <laughs> on. Um, so, yeah, I do have several crazy stories. And now that I'm on the spot, I have to think about it. Yeah, sorry to put you on the spot. I know you were gracious enough to come on today where we didn't, uh, you know, really discuss questions or anything beforehand. So I don't want to put you on the spot. I mean, we could always come back to this later if, you, if something comes to mind. No, no, um, no, no, no. I, I'm going to think of one here. So uh, <laughs> one of them, one, of the, one file I dealt with, this is an old file and it was years ago. And similar situation here. So we're dealing with a highly successful, highly motivated, somewhat, uh, I'll say, uh, type A personality or, or has that kind of controlling sense to him, I guess. Very, very results-driven individual who owns this business. And the, the spouse was not really involved in the way that the business worked and, and didn't understand what was going on. And 
there were some some fairly substantial allegations of of what I think I referred to as shenanigans uh, on your last podcast in terms of expenses and, and personal conduct in the business. And this is the type of situation where it becomes overwhelmingly complex. So you have to start thinking sort of, of outside of the box ways to, to explain this in a way that is articulate and actually uh, real. But what this person was doing, so they had, they had several businesses. So they had, I think it was three or four businesses at the time and had sold one of them prior to, prior to separation, I think just prior to separation for let's call it $10 million. I forget the, the amount, but it was a lot, but it was sort of a novel way to try to reduce support obligations. And I don't know if he thought this up or if someone had kind of advised him on it because it was difficult to unpack. So what he did was that he sold this business and he was incurring uh, what I'll call paper losses on the other remaining businesses. So he was expensing a bunch of stuff um, that was personal to put these companies into a loss position. And he took the money from the sale and dumped it into the corporations and started loan siphoning between each corporation. So all the corporations owed each other money at different points in time. But what he was doing was he was taking all of his trips. He was going to Hawaii, Chicago, Austin, Texas, San Francisco, competing in a bunch of things, uh, taking people out for dinner, et cetera. I mean, all of this stuff was clearly personal and he was running it 100% through the business. And then he was claiming he was earning zero income because he wasn't drawing a salary from the businesses. He was just pulling the, the loan balance that he had extended to the corporations down. So that was, that was sort of a novel way to try to knock down spousal support and, and child support. And what we found going through the documents was that there were uh, some, some uh, nighttime clubs uh, that were <laughs> on the expenses, amongst other things. So that was an, an interesting conversation to have. Now, you testify in court sometimes, is that right? Yeah, like you've definitely. been an expert witness and, and whatnot. Um, how do you find that? Um, you know, do you, uh, a lot of people hate having to, uh, you know, be a witness in court. I don't know, if, you know, if you've done it enough times, you really, it's just part of the job. You don't really bat an eyelash about it or, you know, what's been your experience, your experience been like with that? I love it personally. You love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do enjoy it and it makes me feel more part of the legal system because I, I am still to some degree an outsider, even working primarily in this field. But when you actually get to sit down in a courthouse, you're part of the decision-making process and kind of the wheels of justice, so to speak. And I enjoy it. One of the things that I do specifically, I mean, obviously everybody preps a case differently and they have a different angle in terms of how they're going to testify. And for me, without giving away too many secrets to uh, counsel that might catch this podcast, but <laughs> I try to keep things simple and, and conversant and, and try to make things clear to a judge because these people are, the judges are extremely busy and they're, they're very much bogged down, especially these days with all the COVID delays and all this stuff. 
and you want to make a point, but you don't need to overly, uh, overly make it too complex. So I try to just to bring it down and, and talk in a way that people understand. One of the issues that comes up, uh, I find with a lot of files is to do with income taxes and people, you know, self-employed who, you know, they haven't filed tax returns in years. And, you know, it's funny because every time I get reassessed by Revenue Canada and, you know, they or they deny me, um, you know, some sort of child benefit that I'm actually entitled to legitimately. (laughs) um, (laughs) And I have to justify to them why I should get it. You know, I'm always like rolling over thinking like, oh, my gosh, like if they, why aren't they going after the eons of people who come to me, you know, as, as clients or their spouses who, you know, haven't filed a tax return in years when I file one every year. So is this something that comes up in a lot of the work you, that you're doing as well with people where you've written referred matters and, you know, people have not filed taxes in years? Yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> and then it becomes an exercise almost in preparing their tax return. Not that I can actually prepare it for them and do it, but it's the same level of analysis only that now we have to rebuild everything from scratch. So what's going into the bank accounts? What are the expenses? Where are the receipts? Where are the invoices, et cetera? We got to put all this stuff together and, and figure out what the heck is going on because that's the important part. And tell, I mean, I ideally have the people file their taxes when they're going through this process, because that's something that, I mean, if you owe tax, you've got to be doing, and it's not really to your advantage to not be filing these returns. What CRA is actually doing now, and it's a clever way of doing this because they're trying to maximize their dollar, their dollars collected by, you know, hour they're spending on, on audits and reviews and, and notice letters. And what they're doing is that they're taking the census data that Statistics Canada is running uh, for the country, and they're targeting specifically postal codes where the income is higher than postal codes where the income is lower. So they're trying to go after people who uh, are generally more likely to be filing their taxes and people who have a higher income. So they're going to be able to collect maybe $5,000 or $10,000 in taxes just by fiddling around with, with certain issues uh, versus somebody who you know, is, a, is a self-employed part-time contractor making $20,000 a year or something. They don't, you know, they're not really going to care too much about that. They want to go after the people who they can collect money on as much as they can. I mean, I guess that makes sense, but it just seems like you're penalizing the people who are following the law really by filing every year um, versus those who aren't. But uh... it's cruel. And tax law is a specifically cruel system. And I mean, I'm sure you know this, but a lot of people listening won't know. You have this presumption in court, right? Everybody hears, okay, you're innocent until proven guilty, right? So I'm innocent. And then the other side has to prove that you're guilty. In tax court, no, wrong. You're guilty in tax court until you're proven innocent. <laughs> and CRA can make up whatever hypothetical number that they want to in terms of your income, and they're going to assess you at that. And now it's your job to prove that I did not make that much money. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like just with me, like it's my job to prove that I am entitled to this benefit, you know, to do with my children. 
Um, even though I always was previous years, they've decided now suddenly that I'm not. And, you know, I have to, to prove it. It's, it's, it's interesting, their, their powers. Um, which brings me to my next question. Is, you know, we were chatting the other day about a file that I have. And, you know, one of the things that I think people out there might be curious about is, you know, if you're someone's spouse and they've done some things, you know, with their business or with their personal taxes, um, you know, and, so, you know, Revenue Canada comes after them, you know, for something they were doing during the period of time that you were married, can't, you know, is a spouse potentially going to be liable or can Revenue Canada come after them for things that their spouse did that they may or may not have known about? And, you know, does that, I think that, you know, that's an important piece that they knew or didn't know. Um, So how would you respond to that question? (laughs) The answer is maybe. And <laughs> now you sound like me, a lawyer. Yes, yeah, maybe. And, and it depends on the circumstances to a degree. And the way that it works is this: if you have a corporation, right? So you've got a corporation, and the and the husband or the wife, whoever was running it, was not paying taxes or not paying HST or something to that effect, right? But the other spouse has nothing to do with the corporation, so they're not a shareholder. They're not a director. They're not involved in the day-to-day operations. CRA can go after the owner of the corporation or the directors, who are generally also the owners of the corporation, for director's liability on the tax tax burden amount. So if the person hadn't paid, let's say, $100,000 in HST, CRA can start to chase down the director's to collect that money, but they can't really pierce that corporate veil unless the money has been taken and put into sort of uh, a family type support situation. So sometimes what you'll see is, let's say they're taking the money out and they're using it to pay the mortgage on the matrimonial home then you've got a problem where suddenly you're taking tax dollars that should have been paid to CRA and the other spouse is quote unquote benefiting in the sense that the house is being paid for. And CRA will then try to collect on that balance from the other spouse. And if they can't collect it, it's likely they're going to try to put a lien on the home. Okay. So, I mean, I I guess the, the, the answer that I would have to give maybe to a client is, you know, because you're saying maybe is that they have to be prepared to protect themselves, uh, you know, f- potentially from that being an issue. Yeah. And, and it's important to, to understand it. And if you're dealing with, with taxes specifically, what, you know, the question is how much does a corporation or a company owe and what type of tax is it? because they're different. You'll have corporate tax, which is just an income tax or a version of it. And you'll have HST, let's call it, which is really a trust account. So CRA gets really sensitive when you don't send them their HST payments because you're holding it in trust for them. So you're supposed to remit it. So they tend to chase HST a lot more aggressively than income tax, for example. But there is ways of getting some relief on on it. So the first question is you want to assess 
how much money is owed? Why is it owed? What is the type of balance, right? And where has that money gone? If it's been going towards the expenses of the business, that other spouse doesn't really need to be particularly concerned about corporate tax or corporate HST for that matter, if it's going towards legitimate expenses. But if the person is pulling it out via dividends and paying for, paying for stuff, paying for the car, paying for the house, et cetera, then there might be a problem. And you really want to be diligent to not only understand it, but to, to protect against it. Similarly with personal though, and the big problem with personal is that you are doing things together as a family and you're much more on the line for a personal tax bill than you would be for a corporate where there is some protection mechanism there. So in any circumstance, I hate to, see, I don't like to see when a spouse has been kept completely in the dark on the finances because it raises concerns to me that something else, there might be some sort of undisclosed liability that might crop up here. And if you, I mean, if you are a spouse in this situation, you definitely want to take the reins a little bit or get in the driver's seat and, and attack the financial issues as much as you can in order to comprehend what's going on. And is there any sort of unknowns out there that you might find along the way, but you'd be better to know about right now. So uh, I know it's always uncomfortable to do that. Financial stuff can be, uh, let's face it, it, it's generally for most people boring, uh, not me, but for most people. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But try to try to understand it. And if you do have questions on it or you have concerns, uh, of course, please feel free to give me a call and I'm happy to talk to you about it. Um, and now just going back to what we were originally talking about at the outset of the, of the podcast to do with income assessment. Um, if someone's out there, you know, listening and they have some concerns about, you know, whether their spouse is reporting accurate income to them or not like say for example they've already been through the divorce process um but as you may i'm sure you're aware that you know often people are required to still exchange tax returns or noas and whatnot every year to see if um child support needs to be reassessed um what are some things like just some tips or things that advice you would have for people to look for um you know, to just to be aware of when they're looking at their spouse's return in NOA um, to make sure that they're, you know, alerted to anything that could, you know, potentially be a flag that they may want to speak to their lawyer about. That's a, that's an excellent question. Let me address it this way. What any party here would in an ideal situation be doing. So if you're sitting here at home and you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, I need to understand what's going on going forward. So I know when to reopen this issue if I, or if I need to. What I'd like you to do is go back through the years in the financial disclosure. So let's just, let's deal with a personal tax return, right? And there's a business component to it. And what I want you to do is sit down at your computer and if you have Microsoft Excel, that'll probably be the easiest way to do it. And put in each line on that statement of business, which is uh, T2125 in Microsoft Excel. So you'll see revenue, you'll see cost of sales, you'll see other expenses. So you'll see office stationary rent and so on. And go by year. 
and put each put each of them in by year and you you can actually calculate in excel what the percentage of each expense is against revenue which is probably the best way to do this so let's say it's a five-year-old issue so let's start at the beginning at five years ago and you're going to put all this information into excel so revenue and expenses and profit and then the next year all the same and so on until today and when you look across this table that's set out in front of you what you should see is a generally consistent set of numbers or if the business has changed drastically you're going to see some differences and you want to ask yourself, are any of these dollar values or percentage of revenue values changing substantially enough that I'm suspect that something else is going on here? So if you were to see a, I'm trying to think of a good business example. Well, it doesn't matter. If you're, if you're going to see a painter, right? So you, your, your ex is a painter and was making $100,000 a year when you separated on a net basis, but there's revenue and expenses. You know that there's certain components of these costs that are going to be fixed, like say if there's rent for an office or something like that, you're not going to expect to see a change really year over year unless they go out and get new office space or something like that. But in terms of supplies, in terms of motor vehicle expenses, in terms of other items like that, you can expect to see a, a, a change and it could be a year over year change in terms of dollar value, but the percentage of revenue shouldn't really be changing from year to year. So you know, regardless of how much you're gonna paint, you're gonna only consume so much paint per job or per, per dollar, right? So you're, if you track this information, and you keep track of it on, on a table like Excel, you're going to see the bottom line net income, which is a good, a good barometer to have there to see, is there material enough change to open up this, this box again? And when I say material, I mean, obviously, there's a family law definition of it, but it should be substantial is, is a, another word for it. And are any of these expenses changing pre-separation to post-separation or over the last few years enough to raise concerns. So if paint was only 10% of revenue over the last four years, but then this past year, suddenly it's the expense of 75% of revenue. I know right off the bat, there's some kind of bullshit going on here and it's worth getting into, definitely. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, and now before we wrap up, just because I, I know we kind of did this one on the fly, are there any last um, you know, sort of final issues that I haven't asked you about that you think might be something helpful um, on the topic of income assessment uh, for people to know? There are a few. And maybe, maybe what I'll do is I'm going to open up this, these questions and maybe it's something we can circle back to another time. There are a few things that come up frequently in family law. One of them, I call it the divorce dive. And what happens is the business is profitable, profitable, profitable. And then right around the date of separation, the results suddenly, you know, it, the business is going under and it's going bankrupt and it's losing money and da, 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 da. I'm sure you've heard the story too. Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so the question is then, is the divorce dive, is it legitimate or is it not? Because with some businesses, right, just by happenstance or uh, perhaps it's sort of a confounding factor to the divorce. I mean, the business starts tanking and the business owner becomes a stressed out lunatic at home. And I mean... <laughs> Or an alcoholic and it can't function anymore or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. They were, they used to be a functioning alcoholic and not anymore. Um, (laughs) Then, then there's some sort of legitimate reason behind the business tanking. Right. But obviously in a lot of circumstances, there's, there's a lot of uh, planning that's got in, gone into this and the business is creating these paper losses because the business owner is screwing around with the tax returns and the financials to try to lower their income for support. So that's, that's one thing that I see frequently enough. And you always have to ask that question and check yourself and say, does this, is there a legitimate reason for this? Or is this just being, is a story being concocted here? But one of the things I have two things that keep me up at night in this world in family law. The first is the premeditated divorce by the business owner. And you don't see the divorce dive with premeditated divorce. And the reason for that is that three, a business owner will know a forensic analysis is going to go back three years or five years when they talk to a lawyer. And they're going to say to themselves right then, I'm going to put all of these sort of plans in motion today, but I'm going to file for divorce in three years. So how do I address that if I don't have that data? If I don't have that data, because usually people will look at three years or five years. So that's one of the issues that is certainly worth opening up a box on at some point, and uh, can be can be a scary one because you're not going to see these weird fluctuations. You're not going to see the divorce dive. You're going to have this sort of compelling story. And if you look at a traditional financial analysis of three years, you're not going to see anything really pop out. The second issue that is worth considering, especially today, and especially for people who are listening, who are, say, under the age of 40 to 50 years old, cryptocurrency. How do we chase this? How do we forensically find it? If somebody, and this is becoming much more common with uh, younger entrepreneurs today, especially with online businesses, they're running the whole thing in cryptocurrency and they're not declaring a lot of it on their tax returns. So how how do we break that system and how do we understand what this person's true earning capacity is, especially if they're living modestly? So some people may be making $2 million, but they're living uh, in a 400 square foot apartment or 800 square foot apartment and drive a Honda Civic. So I don't have enough evidence to say this person's making $2 million if nothing's being reported and it's not going through these traditional financial mechanisms that we've used historically in family law. So that's going to be, I think, a huge, huge issue Probably, I don't think it's big right now, but I think five to 10 years time, Coming. it's going to be a big talking point and a big issue. Yeah, that's really interesting because I haven't had that come up yet in any of the cases I've dealt with. But 
you know, I, I could see that being an issue and it's going to be a perfect example of the law not being caught up with the technology and, um, you know, changes are going to have to be made, um, you know, probably on a variety of levels, but to be able to, to keep on top of it more and more advances in that, in that way. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Canada Revenue Agency might have solved that for us to a certain degree already because they just won a court verdict recently, I think in this past week, that this company, it's a cryptocurrency exchange that's headquartered in Canada, now has to give over, (laughs) some people are going to get really screwed by this, but they have to give over all of the financial records of people holding cryptocurrency since 2014 who are Canadian uh, with a denomination of over $20,000 or something like that. So all these people who thought, great, I can avoid the tax system are, uh, are in big trouble right now. And what about with COVID when you're talking, uh, you know, a little bit there about the divorce dive and whatnot, you know, I was kind of wondering whether, um, COVID now is giving, you know, some business owners or self-employed people a great opportunity to, um, you know, underreport their income or do some things and blame it on COVID. And can we really get to the bottom of it? And so I'm wondering, have you noticed that being used, uh, you know, perhaps sometimes improperly as that come up as, as, as an excuse uh, in the last year or so? I haven't hit it yet. I think it's going to be a bigger issue next year, to be yeah. honest. And, and the reason that it probably hasn't hit my doorstep yet is that a lot of the people, I mean, we know how the system works here. So they're going to come to you as a, as a family lawyer and engage you. And then you start sort of putting the wheels in motion to get the divorce done. And then whether it be six months or a year down the road, that's when you're going to pick up the phone and call me and say, hey, you know, yeah. we need to get evaluation done or an income for support analysis completed here. And that's when I'm going to see it. So my suspicion is that it's going to become a bigger issue end of 2021, early 2022 for me personally. The, the question then will be what type of business is it and is the impact temporary versus permanent and is it real? So yeah. is it, uh, has it been a fabricated excuse like you're talking about or reason to punch down evaluation? I think we'll probably run into that more frequently in the, in the near term where people are going to ask for a lower valuation than was calculated, say, a year ago because they can't pay the money for, for the equalization of net family property anymore. So COVID is kind of a convenient reason to knock down that valuation. Uh, and I mean, frankly, it'll be justified in, in quite a few cases. Yeah. And in some, not so much. But the, that'll be the first part. And then it's going to go into the people who are actually separating and, and going through the divorce process now. How do we value a business? in such uncertainty because we can't use if 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 the if the the separation date was say january 1st 2021 i can't use the knowledge that i have now about covid in the valuation so how do you value a business that's closed well that's true that's interesting um uh, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting issues that come up, because uh, as you say, I think by the time it goes through the system, 
that, you know, I've been dealing with a lot of, um, you know, parenting schedule and, and, you know, custody access, uh, which it's not called anymore, but, um, you know, those types of issues, because those have been the immediate ones to hit where, you know, somebody isn't following protocols or, it, you know, there's been a COVID exposure and so access is being denied or, you know, th- or things like that. Um, whereas I think the real financial impact on people we still haven't fully seen it. Um, you know, I think every day is Toronto continues in this gray zone, um, you know, <laughs> more and more, you know, I don't know how some of these businesses have even stayed afloat this long, but, uh, you know, I think the financial financial impact is not, is yet to be really fully seen. Yeah. It's, it's scary. And I can tell you, I was, I was working on a file recently um, for a restaurant that was in Toronto. And the, the impact of COVID, and I had this question in the back of my head when all this stuff started, was how much did the sales decline throughout the lockdown period, even with patios reopening and that kind of stuff over the summer? And the answer was, if it was takeout only, so takeout only service at these restaurants, and I had a few to compare against, the average decline from last year's sales was about 92 or 93%. Wow. So huge. That's and huge. Even, yeah. And even when things were fully reopened, it was still about a 40 to 50% hit year over year on revenue. So wow. restaurants, businesses like that are being uh, thrown to the wolves, so to speak, because yeah. it's, really, uh, it's really been a tough time for them. Yeah, no, and that's not going to probably change anytime soon, because even as they gradually reopen, I mean, there's restrictions on how many people they can have in. Um, And, you know, and then there's also the people who are, you know, afraid to go. And I don't know what is more of us get vaccinated, whether, you know, that's going to change or not. But um, I hope so. I hope so. I think uh, right now, I mean, people are, are still a little bit trepidatious about it to a certain degree. And I don't know if you've noticed, like, if you sneeze or cough in public, people <laughs> freak. Yeah. yeah. yeah no. <laughs> it's like, I you, swear, like it's a allergies. Social pariah. I, have to have to say, I don't have COVID, I promise, you know, <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on the podcast today. Um, as usual, you provided some really helpful information. I think listeners, uh, we can really benefit from it. Uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, you can go to my website, which is www.bensenindustries.com. Or uh, if you'd like to talk to me, which is even better, give me a phone call, 905-699-2317. Well, again, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to my listeners. Please like, review, and subscribe. And I will see you back here next week on Divorcing Well. Hi, my name is Janet Finaki, and I'm the host of the Resilient People podcast. I interview regular people from around the world who've experienced something major in their lives, bounced back, and found a purpose in helping others be resilient too. They're folks like you and me, and their stories are totally relatable, extraordinary, and inspiring. I had no idea what I could do until I did it. But it's the motivation of doing for other people that you know need support, need help that you're able to really push and dig and find what you can do. Have an open discussion and not write us off and allow us to actually talk about our disability. 
Like, don't assume my limits mm -hmm. for me. You know, we went for a drive, told her what her mom was going through and what the likely outcome is going to happen. And we both just bawled. And then finally, Kate just said that we need to have hope. And to be resilient, you have to, you have, to have hope. Join me as we get to know some incredibly resilient people. The Resilient People Podcast is everywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for joining me on Divorcing Well. If you have any separation or divorce questions, you can get in touch with me via my website at www.leannetownsend.ca.